Now, if you are Venezuela, Saudi Arabia or BP, the year has not started well. Something extraordinary has been happening to the oil price. Oil prices have collapsed. The International Energy Agency says we're drowning in crude, which raises the question, how can those in the business community keep their heads above water? Mr. Gage, you are now putting another billion dollars of your own money uh, into green innovation. Well, the returns will come uh, partly through the benefits to society, and so... Uh, well, good afternoon, everybody. Today, we're here to announce America's Clean Power Plan, a plan two years in the making, and the single most important step America has ever taken in the fight against global climate change. But I am convinced that no challenge pose a greater threat to our future. Hi, I'm Sam Ori, Executive Director here at the Energy Policy Institute and host of our new Off the Charts Energy Podcast. Now, at the University of Chicago, we love our data. That's why we're bringing you analysis of today's top energy trends and policies grounded in the latest evidence off the charts. So today we're going to be talking about a key component for scaling clean energy sources like wind and solar. It's something that is very frequently built into long-term plans for transitioning the economy to low or zero carbon fuel, but it's usually treated as an afterthought or even a footnote. It's not high tech and it's not glossy, but it's critical. And it is interstate transmission. <laughs> as it turns out, things are actually not working so well with transmission right now. Uh, I think it's important uh, to understand why. So here to give us a little bit of background is Steve Sakala, an assistant professor at the Harris School of Public Policy. Steve. Welcome and thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Now, um, I went online before we got together here and I looked to see uh, what it would cost to buy a four pound bag of oranges at the local grocery store. And it turns out I can currently get uh, a four pound bag at the uh, expensive uh, ultra organic store for about five bucks. And I can get one for a little bit cheaper at the regular grocery store uh, for about four bucks. So, you know, a little bit less than a dollar a pound. And uh, so what does, that have, what does that tell us about clean energy and the, and the state of clean energy in the U.S. today? Uh, well, I importantly, there are no orange trees here in <laughs> Illinois. Uh, in the heart of the polar vortex. Yeah, that's, that's pretty cheap relative to what oranges would cost if we needed to grow them indoors here in Illinois because we could only rely on Illinois resources to grow oranges. Uh, another important Part of that number, I think, is that it's probably not too different if you go around the country. Uh, anyone could, if they wanted to, take a field, plant some orange trees, wait a few years, and eventually, in some areas, have nothing, uh, and and in some areas have have oranges. There's there are no barriers from them doing that. They can uh, grow their oranges, try and sell them on the market. The key is that they have to compete with Florida and California, where you really don't have to do a heck of a lot to, to get uh, your bounty. That's different in the energy sector in terms of how it's organized. It's similar that the resources are also concentrated. For coal, for example, uh, over half of it comes from the Powder River Basin in, in Wyoming, uh, a bunch from Appalachia, some from, from southern Illinois, very concentrated in terms of where the resources are. 
for clean energy, it's also relatively concentrated in terms of there being a wind belt sort of through the, the middle of the country, uh, solar resources being more concentrated in, in the southwest. So our, uh, our chart for this week uh, is actually a map, and it's a pretty incredible map, or, or a series of maps, actually. Uh, and the first shows that uh, just 25 counties in the U.S., uh, a very, uh, just a small handful of, of counties, and, and, and even concentrated in a fewer uh, handful of states, produce two-thirds of the coal in the U.S. And you mentioned to me earlier, uh, one county in Wyoming, a third of all U.S. coal supplies. Pretty incredible. That's right. And the way that the system has been designed, the plants that actually combust that coal are much more dispersed. Yeah. And so what are sort of the implications of that? Yeah, so the, the parallel with oranges, if, if you look at the, the map this week, is imagine if there were orange groves everywhere there's a dot on this map. That would be insane. That would make no sense whatsoever. If you, if you came to the electricity sector anew, this is one of the first things that, that struck me when, when I looked at it, was that you've got these resources concentrated in particular places, and yet somehow everyone has power plants. Why is that? You know, how is it, how on earth is it that you can have a coal-fired power plant in New York competing in the same market with a coal-fired power plant in the Ohio River Valley where, you know, it just comes right down the, the conveyor belt from the mine itself? And the reason is that they don't compete. That historically, uh, it was difficult to transmit electricity over long distances and it was viewed to be a natural monopoly. And so there was a public utility commission for eventually for states that uh, was created. And utilities that were granted exclusive monopolies for basically from soup to nuts of the electricity sector. They own the power plants, they own the wires, the distribution system. And they went to the regulator and got... Um, they're basically their costs audited. The regulator set the price of electricity and they were allowed to sell electricity at that price, guaranteed that price. No one could come in and undercut them. No one from the Ohio River Valley was trying to sell electricity into New York State. It was their system. Okay. And so that was the, the system that was set up initially. And unfortunately, there's a lot of persistence, both legislatively, bureaucratically, and just conceptually in terms of how people think about the electricity sector. That that framework that was set up in those early days where there was a local regulator and a local producer, and if you wanted to build a new power plant, you went to your regulator and got approval from the state regulator to build a power plant in that state. Well, technology has changed over time, and it's become feasible to transmit electricity great distances at very little cost. Uh, you think about a, a high-voltage direct current line sending electricity hundreds of miles with, say, a 3% loss, whereas the cost of, say, shipping the coal is exorbitant. So we talk about in the uh, article uh, this week, that the price of coal in Maine is five times the cost of, of coal in Wyoming. Putting coal on a train car and sending that train car across the country is really expensive. And at least up until a couple of years ago, another fact that I didn't know was that about half of the rail traffic in the United States 
vast resources that we're using are spent shipping coal from where we're actually taking it out of the ground to where it's being burned. And so uh, Warren Buffett saw a great opportunity there and uh, it invested in some rail capacity from Wyoming to the East Coast. Yeah. Um, so, okay, this is the old system. The, the fuel is concentrated in a few areas. The power plants, uh, because of the technological difficulty and line losses of moving uh, electricity across the country, we instead move the fuel across the country to local places or to local communities uh, where the fuel was combusted to create electricity. Uh, so we've had some technological advances since then, a handful. Yep. Uh, are we making the same mistake again? How, how is this manifesting itself in our current electricity system? Yeah, the, the key thing that we want to avoid is, is to not make this, I, I say make this mistake again, it wasn't necessarily a mistake the first time around, there were real economic reasons for, for doing it the way it was done. Um, but there are very real reasons that we don't want to do the same thing for renewables. And that we really need to get out of the mindset that this is something where the state should be determining how much is generated in a particular place. That basically everyone is producing as much as they consume. And instead trying to move more towards an orange-like model where some places are inherently much better at producing these things. And we could just buy our electricity from those places. And so the, the sort of, I guess, the analog, the current system is being uh, set up around state-level renewable portfolio standards. Exactly. Where we're, in fact, I guess, uh, as you argue in the piece, doing the equivalent of requiring uh, local generators to, uh, to uh, you talk about the Illinois, uh, the Illinois, uh, what's Coal Act. Coal Act. I required Illinois utilities to buy Illinois coal. Uh, and so we're kind of doing, uh, I guess, the same thing with the RPSs and that we're requiring these renewable resources to be uh, generated locally. Uh, you know, I guess the equivalent of requiring uh, people to buy oranges uh, within each state. That's right. Illinois oranges. Uh, so, so I should be clear that I, I, I tried to say in, in the article that these are the generation-based parts of renewable portfolio standards. There are a number of portfolio standards that allow for renewable energy credits. And so a state can meet its renewable portfolio standards by every, say, megawatt hour of wind electricity that's generated in some far off state produces with it a, a code, basically. And you want to own codes that are equal to, say, 20% of the electricity that you're serving so that you are, in effect, uh, encouraging the generation of, of renewable electricity. So there, there's a way of doing it without um, requiring in-state generation. But again, a lot of these renewable portfolio standards have explicit, you know, we want 50 megawatts of solar electricity in Oregon. And you talk about an example in, in, in your piece uh, yeah. in Forbes uh, of, uh, of Massachusetts. That's and right. Solar, solar in Massachusetts. Solar in Massachusetts. Doesn't seem like a, a, uh, you know, a perfect marriage. The frustrating part of this is that these are projects that are proposed by people who care about climate change and want to encourage the development of renewable resources. Um, they are not accomplishing that task. It, it, they are counterintuitively making it much more difficult 
to accomplish that task. So to sort of, I guess, to to tie this back or that comment back to the sort of original premises of this or original premise of this conversation, uh, we have these maps, and we talked about the coal map. There are two additional maps that that are in the article in Forbes this week, uh, and they highlight the incredibly rich solar resources in the U.S. Southwest and the rich wind resources in the U.S. Midwest. And so in the case where you do have generation components of RPSs, we're, we're sort of requiring individual states to generate these resources when, in fact, we have these incredibly rich resources in other parts of the country. The way to get those resources to market would be with long-distance, high-voltage transmission lines, which is uh, you know really at the core of a lot of big ideas about the future of the U.S. grid. We've, I've seen plans put out from a variety of different sources over the last couple of years that say it's technically and technologically feasible to move the U.S. grid over to very high percentages of renewable energy consumption or uh, supply, 80% to 100% by some date in, in the not-too-distant future. Uh, but the piece of that that's always struck me as uh, you know, overlooked and, and important is while it may be technologically feasible, uh, there's a question of whether it's politically feasible. Politically feasible is another issue. And so I think we've seen over the last few years, and maybe it's something that we'll talk about in future discussions and we'll see in future posts, but you know, we've seen over the last few years that building these interstate transmission lines is exceedingly difficult. Yeah. Uh, and there are there is sort of a graveyard of these uh, failed projects. And you talk about one in the, in the piece, the Grain Belt Express, in which uh, you know there was this great project to bring enough wind power to supply more than 1.5 million homes in the mid-south and southeast U.S. Uh, it was going to transit multiple states, and anytime you're transiting multiple states, in these cases, my my sense is that each state says, "Well, what's in it for me?" Yeah. And how does this affect my narrow interests? And eventually, someone raises their hand and says, "No, not good enough. Uh, you're not offering me a good enough deal, and the line doesn't get built." And uh, so it strikes me that this is a pretty big impediment to to the build out of this national clean energy system. Yeah, I, I'd say the the first part is just hopefully to at a very high level get people to realize the the scope of the problem. In that, at the moment, in the neighborhood of 90% of electricity, which is a, a lot, that all of these areas are producing their own demand, or they're producing for their own demand. There isn't a lot of transmission across areas. One notable exception to that uh, is in the Pacific, where they pipe down a, a bunch of um, electricity from hydro resources in the Pacific Northwest to, to California. It's a great example. But short of that, you have you know these population centers in cities, many on the coasts, and all of these areas are producing electricity for their own usage. And the, the massive transition that needs to be made is to have these really energy or resource rich areas become vast net exporters. The way that California and Florida export oranges, we want these guys to be exporting energy. Right? So that's the the that's sort of the task that if we're gonna do this in any kind of reasonable manner, uh, reasonable cost manner, any kind of rational organization to this, means that you want absolutely vast production of renewables from these areas. 
And it can be incredibly cost-effective. And it can be incredibly cost-effective to do that. Now, you've got entrench, entrenched interests uh, in these states that are currently generating electricity who see the end of their business. Right? If you are uh, burning coal on the East Coast, these guys are going to put you out of business. And they should is the key part. To keep the price of electricity low, if there were, you know, just a, a I don't want to say a free market that comes with like so many loaded things, but right. if people were just allowed to compete, coal-fired power plants on the East Coast quite simply would not exist. There is not a rational economic order in which if there's transmission lines from uh, resource-rich areas that those plants would exist. And so you've got local opposition. All right. Now, if you are a politician or a regulator on the East Coast and you're making decisions, or even in these middle areas, we're talking about uh, Missouri for the, for the Grain Belt Express, you have a constituency to get into the politics of it. And your choice is between protecting basically the existence of the local utility. The local utility may or may not contribute to your campaign. And even if they don't, they probably employ a lot of people. They, they employ have a, a lot of people. Constituency of their own. You can put your name on their power plants. Like If you look through the power plant data, the number of power plants that are named after local politicians, it's like you're putting their name on something, right. there's a reason, right? Um, you, you earned it. Uh, and aside from being, you know, FDR, JFK, you, you didn't earn it from your, you know, saving your the world, great diplomacy, status. right? Um, and so that those are the kind of politics that you run up against when you're just trying to deliver the lowest cost electricity to So a state like Missouri, you're going to the constituency there and you're saying, uh, we want you to support these lines. Ultimately, these lines may, over the long term, contribute to uh, sort of the demise of your local industry, but there's this broader public good that we want you to support. And in some cases, they just... Either they, A, they don't support the broader public good yeah. uh, in this case, uh, which I guess you would probably sort of uh, define as climate change, or, uh, you know, it's a narrow economic self-interest. So how do we, you know, there's, so there's a big literature, right, on getting past these sort of like... Yeah, first, first let me say, there's a, a great example of this a few years ago of just um, how really narrow economic thinking leads to perverse outcomes. Uh, so, so this was, was covered, uh, the particular story in, in the New York Times covered elsewhere, talking about the Big Sandy plant in Kentucky. And I'm pretty sure it was owned by American Electric Power. And the story goes that um, in a rate hearing, uh, AEP proposed to convert this coal-fired power plant in the middle of coal country to gas. All right. The price of natural gas was so low that in the rate hearing, um, the, the person from the utility said, the math is screaming at you to, to do gas. And the regulator responded uh, with an expletive to have you lost your mind. 
okay, uh, and went on some rant about to to close this plant or to stop burning coal there would be to wave the white flag of surrender to the bureaucrats in Washington and blah, 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 where it really wasn't environmental regulation, but that natural gas was so cheap, it didn't make any sense. And so there was uh, like a back of the envelope calculation for how much the people in that area were paying in excess to keep that power plant open because they needed to make all these upgrades to, to keep the plant open. So you have this poor area where for a handful of jobs at the power plant, everyone in the area is paying higher electricity prices that it's, it's fine to be concerned about jobs, about the you know, welfare of your constituents and, and that kind of thing. But this sort of industrial policy as a means to accomplish those distributive goals is incredibly wasteful. And self-defeating in some ways. And self-defeating. For communities. Right? This is, this is like drinking your own blood because you're thirsty. Right. Now, okay, so I thought the way that you have in the, in the article and, and in conversation outlined sort of the, the, uh, the East Coast as a good example. Right now... Uh, East Coast coal plants, you know, are, are their economics are moving coal on rail across long distances, uh, when instead they could be moving, um, you know, renewables, cheap fuel from you know the Midwest or the or the Southwest on electricity lines mm-hmm. and and gaining the sort of arbitrage. So, what's the policy framework for that? I mean, we have one on, on the one hand, you have this whole issue around NIMBYism and all yeah. all the states that would have to cross, and you know that's one sort of local politics issue. But just in the broader, in the grand scheme of things, we just went through, and our, I shouldn't say went through. We're in the middle of kind of a bruising battle around the clean power plan and a national framework for transitioning to clean electricity. Yeah, the whole discussion of transmission isn't really central to that. It seems to have no. just been kind of people have just basically said, well, that's going to be too complicated because again they had to do it within the framework of the clean air act that really constrained how they could do things and the clean air act is implemented by the states and so you have this issue that if you look at the maps is truly a federal issue this is a matter of getting power from areas where you've got it to areas where you don't and we've got a state-based framework for accomplishing that now, now, I should say a lot of the roadblocks in NIMBYism and, and that kind of thing have come up uh, over issues of property rights, right? Um, you know, you've got to buy out the, the, the land of a farmer and easement from farmers to, to get uh, things going across their lines. Eventually project costs. Exactly. Okay, and so a lot of the approval that they need from states is to be classified. This is the particular problem for clean line. They need to be classified as a utility in order to then be endowed with certain rights of eminent domain to get around these problems. And so they don't have those rights, say, in Missouri, and, and that throws up a roadblock of the whole thing. But, I mean, property rights are, are a real problem. You, you really don't want to have to exert eminent domain because that's telling you there's some failure of a market there. You're taking something from someone who doesn't want to sell it. That, that's something really real. So one thing that I've been thinking about recently um, 
about how we could get around these property rights issues is that as we've described before, we use our vast rail network to ship coal. And as we expand our use of renewables, there will be less demand for that coal. There will be less demand for these rail lines. Rail lines are probably the like preeminent owners of property right already assured transit lines through these areas. So there, there can be some technological issues of, of running transmission lines over an active rail that are parallel to each other and there can become some voltage issues that you don't want to get into. Right. But so, so suppose that in the most pessimistic scenario, you actually had to rip out the rail line to put down a transmission line. At some point, there will be rail lines that become sufficiently underutilized because we're not burning coal that really the value of this rail line is the property right of way that they've already secured. And the value of the transmission line to send electricity becomes more valuable. And so something that I've been thinking about, and you know, if, if Warren Buffett is, is listening, they can see themselves on the losing end of this renewables thing, right? Their business is basically shipping coal, right? A tremendous hedge for them is to start thinking about their rail lines actually as rights of way and think about what are the, whether it's regulatory or legislative or, or whatever, things need to be done in order to easily convert these already secured rights of way as transmission capacity. So in the, uh, you know, I could be stepping out of my uh, area of expertise here, but I'll give it a shot. In the uh, classic U Chicago tradition, almost a cozy and kind of solution, you know who has the property rights. It's a single entity right. in many cases, and that uh, then really allows it to boil down to a, an economics question. That's right. That's fascinating. Um, well, so uh, how, do you, how do you think about, or I guess, you know, 10 years from now, how do we look back on this current, uh, this current sort of struggle uh, in terms of our challenges in moving electricity around the country? Is this going to be something that you think really stalls the, the clean energy transition, or do you think that uh, the politics ultimately, or in this case, you know, potentially it's an economic solution, yield to the yield to the broader transition that's underway, and, and there's some potential, some opportunity. I think there's more mayhem to come, frankly. Um, that I'll, I'll sort of describe in in future posts how you sort of lay federal policy on top of these state policies that are encouraging nonetheless the development of renewables in these resource rich areas and what that's leading to is the production of a lot more energy than places can use right and so um to go back to the citrus example we say okay it's crazy if everyone's growing their own oranges we should encourage more oranges to be grown regardless of where they're grown. And lo and behold, more oranges get grown in Florida and California. But if they can't export them. <laughs> but if they can't export them, they just have to dump them into the sea. Right. Right? That's effectively what we're doing with wind right now. Uh, we're encouraging the, the development of, of wind resources, but they've got nowhere to put them. And so they've just got to dump it, basically. Fascinating. Uh, well, this is something I imagine we will turn to in future discussions and in and, uh, future posts, but that's all the time we have for now. 
So please out there, make sure to subscribe to our off the charts podcast whenever you, uh, whenever you have time and wherever you get your podcasts, uh, you can get them, uh, you can subscribe to the podcast in, uh, in multiple places, including on our website at epic.uchicago.edu. Thanks for listening for now. And until next time, I'm Sam Ori. Thank you.